RadioInfluence.com. Welcome into another edition of Rush the Field College Football Podcast with veteran scout, coach, and consultant Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. I'm Scott Seidenberg, and there's some bit of news to get into, Chris, and it involves your boy Nick Saban, who made some headlines by sharing his comments about players who decide to enter the NFL draft early. First off, knowing Nick and working with Nick, does his comments, and we'll play them just in a second for our audience, but does his stance here surprise you? No, no, not at all. He has um, he has taken this stance before. Um, in fact, it's kind of once a year he does it. Um, I don't know, maybe this one has got a little bit more uh, play in the media, but he does this almost every year. And I'm kind of in some ways feel in the middle of it because it has been my crusade for some time to really educate players that are coming out in the draft. Um, it's something I've done in, in, in different talking with coaches and with players. Um, and I can tell you how Nick Saban does it in terms of educating his players that I don't know of anybody that spends as much time calling people in the league to augment the advisory committee's information to tell players, hey, Scott, uh, here's what these you know, nine teams have you graded, and here's where you are, to get good information. <clears throat> and here's what you are risking by not coming back and improving your stock and as opposed to being a third round pick, you might be a mid first round pick. Uh, as opposed to being a you know a fifth round pick, you might be a second round pick. And and you know, I think a lot of people look at it as well. It's self serving. He wants them back because it makes his team better. Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, that's true. That's true. But in this case, he's got a lot of talent and he's got good players. What frustrates him? He, he you ever notice he's not begrudging a Quinnen Williams from coming out early or a Josh Jacobs. Those guys are high first round picks and they're going to be high picks. What he, I think really gets frustrated with is that he sees kids go in with the idea that thinking that they're going to be a second round pick, uh, maybe a late first round pick and they end up being a third round, maybe a fourth round pick and they're leaving money on the table is the way he looks at it. Now here's my view on it is my job is to try to educate the kid as to about the draft process and about where their grade is. Here's something that I just don't think people get, and definitely the players and their families don't get. And I try to explain it. I do it a lot on, on my various podcasts and on LandryFootball.com. You grade players to a standard. There's not 32 first-round graded players. You know, there is how many there is, depending on how you grade each and every player. This year for me, I've got 23 first round grades. I've got 58 second round grades. Do the math. There are 32 first round picks. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some of those players with second round grades that are going in the first round. There will be a number of them that are going in the third round. Uh, some maybe in the fourth round. Do the numbers, people. Understand that. Because you're given a second-round grade, well, so are 55, 60 other kids. You're all not going in those 32 picks, okay? The, there's, there's um, you know, third-round picks, you may have about 60, 65 of those. You're, you all can't go mathematically in 32 slots. So though, that's why, again, when I do my draft boards, I explain it. Okay, look, they're guys – this guy's got a 5-9 grade. It's a solid third-round value. He's got a chance to make a team. Okay, but but he's in terms of numbers, he ranks about, you know, 124, which will put him in fourth-round numbers, maybe fifth round. And depending on how somebody sees him, he go may go 10, 12, 15 spots higher or lower. I don't think people get that. They hear second round, well, that's good for me. You know, well, you, you it's you're not necessarily going to go there and so all i want young men to know is 
where is the worst possible scenario for you? And, and, and look, if you want to come out, if the kid wants to come out and he doesn't want to go to school and he wants to, you know, he doesn't care if he's a fifth round pick. Well, that's that's up to him. It's his life um, and it's family's life. But I just want them to not be thinking they're going to be a first round pick and then or a fourth round pick. Um, or, you know, that's where it bugs me a lot, because they tend to believe, Scott, what what, what they want to hear. Of course. So, you know, it's like, you know, you get the NFL information. We tell them the range. But Uncle Joe and, and Aunt Josephine reads that somebody says that um, they're going to be, you know, a, a first round pick. And all of a sudden that's what they think. And then they're disappointed. And it it leads to further issues because they tend to think that they tend to hear that during the season and they stop going to class. Mm-hmm. They may not even be eligible to, to stay in school in some cases. And that is is a problem and and it to me it's a big problem that i don't think people get you know everybody likes to joke ah these football players they don't go to school they're they're majoring in pro football hey 95 percent of them never gonna play pro football even right. even at the major level and the ones that do are still gonna have a long life much longer than their life is in football outside of football Take a guy like Peyton Manning that played forever. He's going to spend more time, God willing, of course. He's going to spend far longer outside of football than he ever did in football, and he's played football all his life. Mm-hmm. My point is, is why not embrace your scholarship, for God's sakes? Why not get a good education? Why not stay in school, particularly at a big-time college program, develop? You're going to have – and it gives yourself the best chance to – Develop your skills. We talked last week in great deal about another developmental league that folded. The develop the best developmental league you have is college football, and you get a free degree with it if you're willing to put the time, and they give you tutorial help. They give you room and board. It's a great opportunity. If you tend to not want to do that, hey, that's your decision. It's time to be a grown-up, but then when, you, when your football career is over – you don't get drafted high, you get cut, you don't make a team, then where, what are you going to do? You have no scholarship anymore. You gave up college football. You can't develop your football skills anymore because you got nowhere to go. Now you got to sit there and take money out of your pocket to try to get a degree that you should have gotten for free and now try to find a job in the real world. These guys are getting hit like a bucket of cold ice water in their face, not realizing it. And I've taken it a little bit. I've gotten on my soapbox. I apologize. But that's a big thing that I I, I want to focus. And I think that Nick is genuine in his concern because I know that he's never, ever advised a kid. That's a, he would never tell Quentin Williams, you should come back. In fact, I've been there and I've heard him say, you should come out. Look. You, you should come out. You will have an opportunity. Now, you come out, you're going to be a high pick. Everybody says it. You need to come back in the offseason and get your degree. You promise that to your mom. You need that after your football career. But you got a high draft pick. It's worth it. But I think he believes that guys can, can help themselves a little more. And I think he's focusing on it. And I think he understands that guys are, you know, agents, agent runners, family members, people are telling them all sorts of things, and he doesn't buy that. And I can tell you another little secret. Um, I wasn't, I didn't see this, but I was told that he, and this is not necessarily a right thing to do, but you know how I feel about it, that he ripped into um, uh, the, the little McShay kid uh, that's on ESPN. You know, ripped him a new one at the Senior Bowl for, you know, basically kind of, you know, acting like some expert and saying this guy's really this and that. That said, hey, kids, listen to you, yeah. even though, even though you right. don't know your head He's from right. your rear. And all that stuff, I think, is really gotten under his skin. And so I, let me say this. I don't think it's just self-serving. Of course, he'd like guys to say, but again – 
if that was the case, then he'd certainly be pushing for the guys that are going to be high first-round picks this day because you think Quentin Williams could help him this year? You yeah. think Josh <laughs> Jacobs could? You think Julio Jones could have helped? No. He advised those guys to come out. Um, he did do something that I thought was over the line in his statement. Well, let's he, hear, let's, with, well, let's, let's hear ahead. from, let's hear from ahead, Nick Saban in his statement. Go ahead and mention it. I think there's no question that it's different, but I don't think it's any different here than it is every place else. You know, we've had this conversation, I think, before, but I don't know. I've heard – I don't really look at it. I've heard 135 guys. I had 142 guys went out early for the draft. Uh, I do know there's some pretty compelling stats out there about guys going out early for the draft. Uh, I think in the last five years, not counting this year, there's been 380 players or thereabouts go out early for the draft, and 25% of those guys didn't even get drafted. And another 25% weren't on a team in three years. So that means 50% of the guys that went out early for the draft had failed careers. But if you look at the number of guys that were first and second round draft picks, there were very few guys that had failed careers. Now we have guys that have no draft grades, seventh round grades, free agent grades, fifth round grades that are going out for the draft. And, you know, the person that loses in that is the player. So uh, it's the culture and it's the trend. And... You know, I've, I've actually changed how I talk to recruits now. You know, I tell every recruit that I talk to, the reason that you're going to college is to prepare yourself for the day you can't play football. I think we have a lot of people way back in high school right, that look <clears throat> at college as a conduit to get to the NFL. And look... I am 100% NFL. I'm 100% guys having careers. Right, but people have to be smart about the business decisions they make relative to the NFL because it is all business. And when people make emotional decisions, they're going to have to suffer some really difficult consequences for their self in the future. That audio courtesy of RollTide.com, Chris. Well, and listen, I agree with everything he said, and, and I'm just saying that because we're friends and all that, and I do agree with a lot of what he says. Um, and what he said is something that I think I should piggyback on, too. Uh, yeah, we got a, a, a whole bunch of guys that are going to get drafted every year, uh, excuse me, that come out early that don't even get drafted. There again, what's next for them? Okay, they they have no more, they're not going to have any more football career. It's over. Okay, and and you know, no, the not a a large percentage of those are going to end up in the XFL, even if the XFL makes it. That's not who they're looking for, and so you know they can't go back to college because they've declared for the draft. Um, I think maybe you know there there could be a rule to allow them to go back, but then again, it affects you know colleges move on and and sign other guys. So, it, but but I think there's there's they're making big mistakes. And again, unless you're a high pick, why would you consider coming out? It just doesn't make sense. And listen to the people that are going to make your decisions on whether you're coming out early or not. That is the key. Now, the one thing that I thought that I didn't really particularly care for, Nick, that he alluded to without mentioning his name. So I'm not going to mention his name, but I think a lot of people know who it is. He references a player that came out. Uh, a year ago, and, and and I don't know that you want to do that. And, and, of course, I think it offended the player. The player came back, snapped at him on social media, and I kind of get that. You don't want to be singled out. with, You know, you can, you can be singled out without giving the name if you kind of point the finger. And, I, you know, I just think if you use it in a general sense, that's true. I think he probably, you know, regrets maybe doing – I think he meant it in a way of it was just got going, but that's the only thing that maybe got a little personal. And I do that sometimes. I will reference a player. Heck, the players that that don't get drafted high, and I say that a lot of times. This guy made a mistake coming out early. Yeah. Well, I mean it from a football standpoint. You got to do what you got to do, and it's your life. And I get it that you make decisions, and if you, you get kicked out of school and whatever, it, look, it's your decision. But I think we need to understand that a lot of these guys are emotionally immature, and it's our job as professionals to do it. And let me to, – to make sure that they have the right information. Let me just say that there's some good friends of you and I that I've just – I've gotten frustrated with on radio because the, all you hear is they should pay the player, pay the player, pay, pay the player. And I'm all for – increasing stipend, doing all that. But if they spend half as much time talking about 
how valuable a college degree is and how they should spend more time in school instead of, wow, you should come out. This guy's really good. These kids, unfortunately, buy into the hype. Mm -hmm. And those people have no credibility or accountability. We do. And, you know, it, it just bothers those of us that work in the profession, that are trained professionals, done it in my case for 30 years, that if we're going to give you good information and you know, look, there's Kit. Um, I'll mention his name because uh, um, he, he didn't mind me mentioning it. But Trey Turner came out of LSU a few years ago, and I said, Trey, you you come out, you're not going in the second round. Oh yeah, I got a second round coach. I guess I no. I said you're not. I mean, you're probably going in the fourth, going in the fourth round, maybe late third, but probably in the fourth. I said, are you okay with that? If you do, I said, I think you're a make it guy. I think you're gonna have a good career. But I said, if you're coming out with with just no, I'm good. If I go, you know, late round, I said okay. But I said. You know, you can improve your stock by by a round and a half or two rounds. I, that's okay. I, I don't want – okay, fine. Trey was drafted in the fourth round, and he's been a starting guard for the Panthers, and he's done a really good job. And thank God that he did. And I say thank God, not that it was my responsibility. I was con- trying to convince him to come back to LSU. Um, he didn't, and, and that's his decision. But had he not made it, part of me, Scott, would have felt – responsible because I didn't do enough to mm. just shake them or beat them or tell them no because don't the problem do it, the know? problem also lies in that when these players receive their draft grades they themselves are taking that as the end all be all when in reality so much goes into the draft process there are teams that draft for need rather than best available and so if you are a defensive end and you get a second round grade and in the second round you haven't been drafted yet and there's three teams left with second round picks but not none of them need a defensive end guess what you're going in the third round and so or, it, it, yeah, you can't yeah. just sit there and say because I was graded as a second round talent I'm going to go in the second round unfortunately a lot of these outside influences that are offering up their services, their counseling to these players, they don't have the intentions like you had talking to Trey. Their intentions are maybe monetary. They get a certain cut of the player's contract. And so they say, you know what? Hey, we got you a second round grade. And don't worry about it. Even if you go into the early third, you're still going to get a $2 million signing bonus. As long as we we avoid the fourth round, that's where your bonus gets lower. So don't worry. You got a second round grade. We're going to slide you in in that $2 million signing bonus, baby. And, And just so people understand what you're saying is, and when the guy doesn't, they just move on to the next player and Correct. tell them the same song and dance. And that's the problem. And that's the issue. Uh, and, and look, your point's well taken. Now, a defensive end is going to always be going high because that, well, that's value. Of course. But, but, <laughs> but you, you were making your point of now the running back, the receiver, the guard, those guys are going to be valued down. Again, I, I'm, I'm going I'm 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 to say this once more because it's so important. All right, I've got – 30 early high second round value grades, six, four grades, high second rounds. How the heck 30 players are going to fit at the top of the second round? They can't. The point is, though, that's where the there's a lot of quality there and they all are deserving of their grade because they earned it. But numbers dictate they can't all go there. Heck, they barely fit into the entire second round. Now, the mid to late second round value got 29 guys. So that means that there are 29 guys that there are two spots for. So 27 of them can't go in the second round, physically can't. But they're, they're good enough to be given a grade, and I do this in my scouting reports on the website, and explain it that way that, hey, this is why there's really good value if you get player X with a mid to late second round grade. You're going to likely get them in the fourth round. And some of these guys will bleed into the fourth round. And so just pure numbers, as you said, some may be just going in terms of 
if players are equal, as you said, all right, look, so the defensive end has got a 6-0 grade. He's got a good chance of sticking in the second. But the running back, the guard, where the position is more plentiful in the draft, that's where those guys get pushed down a little bit. And therefore, because they think they're going to be a second-round grade, even when they're told by the league, then, you know, that's not necessarily where they're going to go. And they do buy into – listen, I, I think that we – I think you would probably agree that the popularity of the draft is really – developed in terms of people's interests and in mock drafts, fantasy football, and, and that's fine. But that's what the players do. They get online and on social media, and they hear this and buy into this stuff because uh -huh. they want to buy into it. I mean, it's no difference. It's like somebody that you like people to tell you you're good or whatever. It's just human nature, but it's not living in the world of reality, and they're hit with a really hard, cold dose of, dose of reality come draft weekend, and I don't like it when they're not prepared for it. So all we can do, and Saban does it every year and others do it, is just kind of preach. Preach and get them to understand. Hopefully they make good decisions. And here's the other thing. The advisory board doesn't do a good enough job. I've been up, been on it. Uh, they only give a, a, a general idea. They don't tell you that you're a second-round third. They give you kind of first day, which is why coaches like Saban – and I mentioned this on the Landry Football Podcast today, in fact. Um, coaches supplement that with contacts with people in the league. You know, so they'll call, you know, maybe, you know, two, three coaches will call maybe three to six people that they know in the league. And then so they get 15, you know, 16, 18, 20 different opinions from different. What do you think about my guy? Where do you think he might go? What can you give me? And you go back with the information. Now, some players may think, ha, ah, he's just trying to convince me to stay. Well, you know what? I can't say that they're, you know, everybody's 100% genuine, but I believe that if you trust your coach and he's got your best interest at heart, he's going to give you the right information. I don't know anybody that I would say would lie to a kid and say, hey, they say you're a fourth rounder when they when everybody is telling them that he's the first uh, in the league. I, I think that they're honest with the kids. And yet, you know, I think the kids want to hear what they want to hear. And who are you going to believe? People that are going to draft you or make the determination of where you're going to go or somebody on the, you know, that, that's a talking head that really has no background in it. Uh, I do this a lot for a whole bunch of coaches and, and you know, supplement what they have and, and give a general feeling from an overall league standpoint where the value is. And I do preach the numbers to try to get that information to their kids through them because I can't speak to all of them. So if I can do that in certainly forums like this, it, as you can tell, it's a big passion of mine because uh -huh. I just think kids – it, it, you know, get hoodwinked into thinking one thing and then the rugs pull out from other under them. While we're on the topic of the draft, I uh, noticed a couple of things on LandryFootball.com. Of course, you're putting together your, your draft boards and evaluating the talent that's there. But also, in addition to the big name players that I guess the listeners and, and fans are more familiar with, there's always players from smaller schools, Chris, that wind up being, whether they're the, the combine heroes or just the unsung players that wind up having big impacts on their NFL teams. And, and I stress the people that are just on the casual viewer that's watching it from the outside and may hear a school that they're not familiar with, or it's a school that they don't watch traditionally on a Saturday, play football on national television. That doesn't mean the talent is severely less than what you're going to find at one of these bigger programs. Sure. Overall, the talent doesn't compare, but there are NFL caliber players in all levels of collegiate football. And so when you're looking at some of these smaller school players, who are some guys that stand out right away to you that we're going to be hearing their name called early on in the NFL draft? Well, um, Nasir Adderley, uh, a safety from Delaware, is a really physical, tough receiver that's got good cover skills and I think is going to be a really good player at the next level and could go as high as the second round, maybe third. Titus Howard. An offensive tackle from Alabama State, 6'5", 322. He was a high school quarterback. He walked on to Alabama State, played tight end, 
Very, very raw, but very talented. He's got the footwork and the bend to be really good. Outstanding. This guy could be the next to Ron Armstead. Kalen Saunders, talked about him before. Defensive tackle from Western Illinois. Six feet, 324. Um, I think he's a one-gapping uh, one 4-3 defensive tackle, three technique. Um, really good-looking player. There's a tackle out of Sioux Falls, um, South Dakota, Trey Pipkins. Jordan Brown, a cornerback of South Dakota State. John Cominci of Charleston, the defensive lineman. Um, Xane Amenez, a defensive end of Old Dominion. Uh, Joseph Tuata, a linebacker from Texas San Antonio. Keelan Doss, a receiver from Cal Davis. Andy, Andy Isabella, a receiver from UMass, a slot receiver. Nate Davis, a guard from Charlotte. Drew Forbes, a guard from Southeast Missouri. Corey Ballantyne, a cornerback from Washburn. Um, uh, Olai Udoa, a tackle, offensive tackle from Elon. Jazz Ferguson at Northwestern State in Louisiana, big receiver that was an LSU transfer. Um, Joshua Miles, a tackle from tackle guard from Morgan State. There's some others. We've got them uh, um, all broken down on LandryFootball.com. Did you, you can did check. You, but did, did you mention the um, the North Dakota State quarterback? Uh, I he, I did not not uh, today, but I do have him on the list. Uh, Easton Hicks is a quarterback. Yeah. He's stick, very right? very yeah. you know he doesn't have a great arm. I'm not as high on him as others, which is why he didn't come you know come off the top of my tongue. But he's a guy that I've got uh, profiled on LandryFootball.com. Got him on the draft board. Have a scouting report. But you know as you mentioned, Darius Leonard, South Dakota, South Carolina State last year. He was the defensive rookie of the year in the NFL. He's uh, picked 36 overall. South Carolina State. Mm-hmm. Okay? We talked about him last year at this time on LandryFootball.com. There's about 20 to 25 small school players drafted each year, and, and usually about five to eight in the first three rounds. Um, there's some good players. They're late developers, and everybody's got a different little story. But don't discount those guys. And while the numbers, as you mentioned, are going to be mainly in the the big schools, you can find some really good players. A lot of people wish they had Darius Leonard on their roster today. Oh, absolutely. All right, Chris. Now, we have an, a, a big school here for our state of the program, so I want to give it the proper time it deserves. So without further ado, let's get into this week's school. What's going on at your favorite school? This is State of the Program on Rush the Field. And as we work our way down the top 25 rankings, Chris, here in our state of the program feature on Rush the Field College Football Podcast, we have to look now at the Ohio State Buckeyes. Well, when you think about Ohio State, you think about one of the great brands in college football. You think about the state of Ohio. You can make the case that from all levels – it's one of the best football states. Yes, in terms of fertile ground, Florida and Texas are bigger. California is bigger. Even Georgia now is bigger. You've got a lot of talent. But when you think about Ohio, you think about the great high school programs, Massillon, uh, Moeller. I mean, you can go on and on. Then you think about the Division Three schools, the Mount Unions of the world, the Division Two powers. The And then you got the, the MAC, which I always kind of think the MAC is – you know, Michigan, Just, yeah. Ohio, and a it's, couple yeah, of other places. Everybody's it. in Ohio. <laughs> and then you think about Ohio State. You think about, you know, uh, uh, two NFL teams in the state of Ohio. The Pro Football Hall of Fame is in the state of Ohio. A lot of history and tradition, and a lot of it has to do with the football at Ohio State. Uh, the program was established under the university in 1890. And, you know, they, they had, you know, some good coaches. The one that obviously we're going to get to and talk to about in a little bit is Woody Hayes. But, you know, the guy that was um, – well, the first real coach was Francis Smith. He kind of put together the program um, in, in the early days, uh, in, in the, the, you know, the, the early uh, 30s. And prior to that, it was, was like most programs that we've talked about that, <coughs> pardon me, is, was uh, just trying to develop and playing in a local level. Then Francis Smith was the guy that began to build a program to big-time levels, a well-established coach, really good offensive innovator, and they had really good programs. The, 35, the 1935 squad went on beat Notre Dame and uh, really had a lot of success. 
And then he resigned in 1940. In 1941, they hired, Ohio State did, the coach at Massillon Washington High School by the name of Paul Brown. Yes, that Paul Brown. They had won, he had won six straight um, high school championships, state championships, and he brought in, he changed Ohio State's offense. He planned and organized things like he would do in the NFL, and he just became, had delegated to his assistants and did a phenomenal job. And I often wondered what could have been, because he came in in 41, and he only coached to 43, because like most, he went to the war, and he went to the Navy, and he had uh, accepted a, a commission, was commissioned with the United States Navy, and he had his assistant, Carol Widows, take over in his absence in 1944 and 45, and then they kind of switched with one of the other assistants, Paul Bixler in 46, and then Wes Fessler from 47 to 50. But, you know, what would have been had not been, you know, um, Pearl Harbor, not been – um, uh, you know, a, a war and, and he didn't leave. And that was the case. I've, you've heard me tell the story that Paul Bryant prior to Pearl Harbor, like three days prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, accepted the head coaching job at Arkansas. And he was an assistant at Vanderbilt. Then again, he ended up going to war. And then, you know, people didn't even have full complete teams because a lot of the young men were fighting in the war. So I always thought it was interesting. One of one of the great the modern day, uh, maybe the most brilliant football mind we've ever had in terms of guy that invented the 40 yard dash guy that invented the, the practice squad, taxi squad, the guy that invented classroom teaching and football, the guy that invented uh, calling plays from the sideline, the guy that invented film study. Um, that was all Paul Brown. You wondered, Scott, what would have happened had he maybe spent like 20, 30 years at Ohio State? Well, would we, uh, have, ha- would we have had the Cleveland Browns? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying, the shape of football. You know, what would that have meant for Woody? Um, you know, probably would his timing would not have gone to Ohio State, and we wouldn't because what happened was – um, uh, Brown chose to not to return to Ohio State after going to war, and he went to pro football, and this was pre-NFL. And so what happened was it just kind of developed, and back in 51, they considered bringing Paul Brown back, and he had an interest in coming back after he spent a little time in pro football, but they ended up hiring uh, – Woodrow, Wayne Woodrow, Woody Hayes, (laughs) and he became the head coach in February of 51. And then as we know, the rest is history with Paul Brown. We'll step off from him because we know what he did. That's who the Cleveland Browns were named after and the old AFL and and then leading into the NFL. And, you know, as I said, uh, naming the stadium after him. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, was founded, you know, the Browns were named after him. Then he goes to Cincinnati and uh, after being fired by Art Modell and and starts the the expansion uh, Bengals and uh, and kind of has the uniforms instead of instead of instead of Brown. And orange made it black and orange and kind of ticked off uh, uh, Art Modell. So, yeah, it, 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 the rest they say is history. So Woody comes in in 51, and, and boy, he had some really good players in those days, the great Howard Hopalong Cassidy and the really good teams. The 54 team was really good. It's interesting, though, and how would this fly today? In 55, Woody Hayes admitted in an article, I believe it was in – the Sporting News or Sports Illustrated, one of those, he admitted to taking out a small personal loan to help some financial needy players. Uh, how would that go today? I mean, yeah, it, but, exactly, but right? it just goes to show you how that took place back then. But they did have an issue because the commissioner of the Big Ten, Tug Wilson, um, they found him guilty of violations. They put him on probation. So, yeah, probation took place even back then, believe it or not. But in 57, they won all the re- remaining games, and uh, they went to the Rose Bowl, won over uh, Oregon, won a share of the national title with Auburn. He was coach of the year. 61 team went undefeated. He had a lot of good teams. Probably, I think, his best team, at least the one that I followed and saw you know, significantly, was 68. I can remember vividly them beating Purdue was ranked number one in the country. Bob Greasy was the coach. Bob Greasy. And they, um, you know, Ohio State went in, beat them. Uh, they beat Michigan like 
you know, 50 to 10 or 50 to 14 and went to the Rose Bowl, beat USC, won the national championship and was really good. The, the, the class of 70 became clone, uh, clone the super sophomores. And, you know, then the 69 year was a key year because that's when, when, um, Bo Schembechler had gone, who was off of Woody staff at Miami, um, had gone and he'd taken a job at Michigan. And then, then that's when it started the 10 year war because Michigan out of nowhere upset a really good Ohio state team that was probably headed towards a national championship. And that started the 10 year war, Woody and Bo. And of course, you know, they were, they were, you know, they hated, but they were hated because they loved one another. And one was like a son to the other and so on and so forth. Well, then, you know, Woody was known as a disciplinarian and he came in and as it progressed in the early seventies, he installed the I formation he had a good running back that he brought in by the name of Archie Griffin, and then he had a sophomore quarterback, Cornelius Green. They went undefeated. Um, great defenses. He always had great defenses. But, again, Michigan steps up, ties them there, um, 73, 74, and 75. Um, and, of course, you know, I, I mentioned Archie Griffin. He was the only two-time yep. back-to-back. Yep, you said it, uh, Heisman Trophy winners. And so and it really uh, was a nice run that started pretty early in the 50s as college football got really popular and got some television exposure in the 60s. You know, his teams are really good. Of course, um, how his career ended was – I can remember this, Scott. It was – imagine this. You know we talk about it every year. It's bowl season, right? You know, the, 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 the bowl games between Christmas and New Year's and, you know, the holiday time. We're watching them. We all like them. I can remember that. There's Keith Jackson and Frank Broyles doing the game on ABC televising the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. It's against Clemson. And you know the story. Mm-hmm. And, but I saw it live. A lot of people maybe did. Um, Charlie Bowman, the linebacker from Clemson, intercepts the ball. And Woody, who was known as a firebrand, um, Scott, you 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 saw a lot of Bobby Knight coaching in mm-hmm. basketball, didn't you, as a kid? Mm-hmm. Is it okay? Uh, Woody Hayes was Bobby Knight on the football field. He had that explosive temper that absolutely, you know, if he could throw a chair, he'd throw it. He'd throw headsets. <laughs> he he took the um, the sideline markers yep. and threw that. He took one of the sideline markers and bit it. Uh, you know, he was just like, he was a wild man, you know, and, and he, in a rage, just grabbed Charlie Ballman, lifted up his helmet, and delivered a punch. Now, he didn't, like, get, like, a good shot or anything, but he, but he did it, and, and Scott, it was – you could see it, but – and you can go YouTube it today. Mm-hmm. You see it, but you're not quite sure what you're seeing. And I didn't see it as that. I saw, what is he doing? You know, I did he, thought he grabbed one of his own players. It happened so quickly. Nothing was mentioned on the telecast. I don't think they saw it. Um, it was not like um, – you know, maybe something today where you have a bunch of different angles. Well, then, as it were, um, that was his last game. The The program, it began to slip a little bit. As you would say, it, you'd indicate going to the Gator Bowl, nothing against that, but that was not typically where they ended up. It was normally in the Rose Bowl or something close to it. And the program had slipped a little bit. And I think that they, uh, rightfully so, I'm not saying that they were wrong in doing it, they basically pushed, they fired him. Um, it's just no other way to put it. They fired him, and um, you know it, it was a result of it. Now, the, the the story behind the scene is that they were kind of ready for him to go because the program had began to slip. And so, in comes Earl Bruce. I was fortunate uh, to oh, I don't know if I was fortunate. Maybe I was not fortunate to to coach against as a young coach against Earl Bruce. We had two games when I was a young coach at LSU against Earl Bruce Buckeyes, and he had he coached the the Chris Spielmans, the Chris uh, the Chris Carters, the Keith Byers, the John Franks, the Jim Lachey's, the Tom Tupas, the Pepper Johnsons. Those guys, um, really good staff. Earl had Jim Tress on his staff, Glenn Mason on his staff. Pete Carroll and his staff may have heard of him. How about Nick Saban? Heard of mm-hmm. him? Uh, Dom Capers heard of him. All guys that Earl Bruce hired on his staff. But another young guy that he had on his staff that I became friends with, 
He was a graduate assistant at Ohio State when I was a graduate assistant at LSU. Uh, a guy by the name of Urban Meyer, mm-hmm. uh, and we, so and, we had, know, and we know from the recent Urban Meyer incidents uh, <laughs> his relationship though with Earl Bruce. We Absolutely. that became very of, of everyone knew about it to begin with, but it was extra publicized most recently with the Urban Meyer incidents that most recently occurred. Absolutely, Earl was like a was like a father to him yep. and yep. taking care of his son-in-law that was uh you know was uh, uh of his grandson was something that you know probably uh, cost uh, urban an, an awful lot but you know he had some good teams um you know and I, I remember the 81 game that uh, uh arch Leister, who's another story in and of itself probably heard that story arch Leister was a really talented quarterback at ohio state and a very high draft pick and he had a gambling addiction and lost a lot of money and lost his career in the league. But I, I don't remember him out playing John Elway uh, in a game. And I, I, you know what I remember about Earl Bruce when they let him go? Um, there was there was speculation on the Michigan week that he was going to get fired. Uh, the president uh, then was going to fire him. But he's trying to keep it a secret. It got out. And what I thought was interesting is the the what they call the best damn band in the land, as they like to call the, the Ohio State band. The band went to Earl Bruce's house. And, Scott, I, I remember this because they I remember showing it on TV, a clip of it. They went to on his on his front lawn and began playing, you know, and he came out. It was almost like something you would you would see in a movie. And I could still remember Earl with his, the tears coming down his eyes. And anyway, that's that's how he departed. And and in comes John Cooper, the hot, bright young guy from Arizona State and had some success. It's a little bit of fast talking guy and not well liked in the coaching community. Recruited very well. Boy, did he recruit. Man, did he absolutely recruit. He, Miami at this time, from 88 to 2000 is when Cooper recruited. Miami didn't take a backseat to Ohio State. You know, I, we, this is when, you know, I had been in the league now scouting at this time. And, man, Ohio State visits usually took two, sometimes two and a half days, got to get through. I mean, you know, we drafted Eddie George, and we could just go on and on and on. Orlando Pace. Two, I mean, just a whole bunch of guys. Robert Smith. I mean, just just players after players. Cooper just couldn't get it done against Michigan, and he just struggled in big time moments. And you know, he he listen. He had a million dollar contract when a million dollars was like, whoa! Can you mm-hmm. believe he got a million dollars? Um, it was, but it was uh, always something to where every year he was going to be potentially fired. I was in Cleveland near the end in the last two or three years there was a lot of rumors right there in the state that they were going to get fired i had a conversation with somebody there at ohio state and there was an assistant on our staff by the name of nick saban (laughs) that was rumored that he might get consideration to get the ohio state job nick had been an assistant at michigan state he had been a head coach at toledo for one year and he was defense coordinator for belichick you know, they hadn't had ultimate success there in Cleveland yet, uh, and Bill didn't have the success. But, you know, he didn't didn't get enough legs. But that was a thing for about a week or two, and it never really developed. But eventually Nick uh, moved on, and as you know the stories I mentioned it talking about LSU, I recommended him to LSU. LSU didn't hire him. So Nick goes on to Michigan State yep. and does a good job there, and then the rest is history. John Cooper's tenures over, gets fired after they got frustrated. In comes Jim Trestle, guy that, you know, I always thought that, you know, in talking with people that if there was a guy that was more perfect, because Cooper was kind of like, he doesn't get it. You know, he's not, he doesn't get the, the importance of the Michigan game. He's not an Ohio guy. And I thought, man, and his name came up, and I said, Jim Trestle at Youngstown State, who is a legend, yeah, national championships. Yeah. yeah, just Ohio through and through, you know, could recruit, could teach, just, you know, get it. And, you know, I remember when he got the job, the first thing he did, as they normally do and introduce him at basketball games, you know, says how we're going to be ready for that uh, team up north because they would never call him by name, Michigan. <laughs> and Jim did a great job, won a national champion. And, of course, it comes the the sweater vest and it has all the name. He's mm-hmm. had a lot of success. Then, as we all know, it ended with Tattoo Gate. Tattoo Gate, yep. You know, 
covering that up, and then that didn't go well. Luke Fickle came in as an interim, and then by this time, Urban Meyer, who had long since left and got uh, you know jobs as an assistant at Bowling Green and then got a job at Notre Dame as an assistant on Lou Holtz's staff, which I've mentioned on previous podcasts, then got the head job at Bowling Green, then got that to the uh, head job at Utah, then got the job at Florida. Uh, had his stint, you know, stepped aside, did a little TV. As things would play out, the young guy from Astabula, Ohio, uh, is available and is the like the. There been a more slam dunk, no intrigue hire than 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 Ohio State hiring Urban Meyer, and we know that Urban had his success and did what he did there. And then you've kind of alluded to it. We went into last off season where there was a lot of tumult and issues, and that led to some problems. Of course, Urban had some issues health-wise mm-hmm. in a couple of different stints. And then uh, uh, much like um, you know, Earl Bruce did, his mentor, Urban hired very well. He hired a really good coach uh, that was an up-and-coming future head coach in waiting that did a good job and learned under Chip Kelly at Oregon, really good offensive ideas. Name Ryan Day, and of course that's who we have as the head coach, and we're all anticipating, you know, the job that the guy's going to do. The talent level, they are the program in the Big Ten. Everybody's trying to chase them. Jim Harbaugh in Michigan hasn't been able to do it. Will they finally catch him? Everybody's asking it, but you know, it's one of the iconic programs, and you know, you look at it, you would have to say, based upon. You know, just the accomplishment and the length of tenure that Woody Hayes, not Paul Brown, has certainly had the most successful career. If you're looking at all time, Paul Brown is is as good as any we've ever had. I mean, he's he's probably people think of Lombardi more, Scott, because Lombardi entered the Super Bowl era and that's who the Super Bowl's named after. And Paul Brown was done before that era. He was of course, an owner and a general manager uh, with Cincinnati in that Super Bowl era. But you're talking about maybe the greatest football mind ever. And Paul Brown, the coach there, Woody Hayes, Jim Tressel did a great job, and Urban Meyer. Uh, it, it certainly has been a who's who of coaching and a great tradition that um, is something to behold. And the great players, as you mentioned, the only two-time Heisman Trophy winner, um, but Eddie George won one. Mm-hmm. The last one was Troy Smith. Yes. Uh, I mentioned Hopalong Cassidy in the 55. Vic Janowitz, a running back. Les Horvath in the 40s won one. Um, just a lot of great players that are far too numerous to mention. Yeah, Orlando uh, Pace. For, I'm sorry, Orlando Pace. I mean, mm-hmm. just on and on of all Americans that just are – um, incredible guys that have played there. It is very much, we talk about, deservingly so, Alabama, Clemson, now Georgia, but Ohio State talent-wise recruits in that same stratosphere. Um, and they've had some success on a national stage playoff-wise. But, you know, have they done quite uh, as much as they'd hoped recently? I know they've fallen a little bit short. But um, it is certainly an elite program, and um, certainly outside of the South, it's been the most consistent program and dominant program in the country. And there it is, the state of the program of V. Ohio State University. This is Rush the Field College Football Podcast, and, well, college football is just some of the things that you are going to learn more about when you are a subscriber to LandryFootball.com. Because when you go there, You get everything you need to become more educated on the college football landscape and the NFL landscape. It's scouting season now. You got the NFL draft right around the corner. So you got draft boards, college recruiting. There's some recruiting news that you can check out on LandryFootball.com. Roster analysis on both the college and the NFL teams. All the latest inside scoop as well in the notebooks that are released daily. And of course, Chris, the free War Room newsletter that fans can get every single week delivered right to their email. 
Yeah, free, and it gives you some inside information that that we don't publish, and uh, it, it's uh, we're getting great feedback on it. We're really excited about our draft boards. We not only have the boards uh, like they are inside a draft room, and like we talked about how guys are graded and tell you where the cutoff points are. We got that for you. We tear, tell you where the grade value is, where the how the number of value matches up at each round, uh, as to what quality of players you're going to get, so on and so forth, and and so we provide that. For for you but we've put a nice little touch we think this year and we've gotten great feedback we've got nfl draft room style scouting reports so you can listen to the scouting report on all of these players and get a visual of what these guys can do where they are how they fit what type of scheme they fit in uh so on and so forth so it's a great way to learn about these players going into the draft. We're counting down here two weeks away. And, you know, what we do, we follow the game of football with these players coming out of high school into college. We study them in college and obviously as they move on to the NFL. So it's why we stay, why we say it's one-stop shopping football. So as Scott said, take advantage of that discount offer. It's a great opportunity uh, to get involved and get a discount that's almost 60%. So you'll absolutely love it. You can follow me on Twitter at Landry Football. Also on the website, you can catch this podcast and uh, all the other podcasts that we do that get you caught up on everything. If you like college football, you like the NFL, you like both, uh, I think you'll be in heaven. That's right. It's LandryFootball.com. And as Chris said, you follow him on Twitter for all the latest breaking news at LandryFootball. You follow me, Scott Seidenberg, on Twitter at ScottsOnAir. Rush the Field can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Until next week, Chris. Hey, look forward to it, Scott. Have a great week. This is a Sitting Ringside with David Penzer Quick Fix on Radio Influence. This week on City Ringside, we welcome Cowboy James Storm and talk to him about his career, including his brief stay at the end of WCW that I didn't even remember. Also about the beginnings, the middle and the final days of TNA, including his tag teams with Chris Harris is America's Most Wanted and Robert Roode with Beer Money. How far they could have taken fortune and how hard it was not to laugh during the Ric Flair, Jay Lethal segment and his thoughts on Dixie Carter, why he didn't go to NXT at the end and where he'd like to go now if he had his choice. All that and so much more. Be sure to listen, download and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Sitting Ringside with David Penzer can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.